It's the weekly economics podcast and I'm Hannah Wheatley, filling in for the magnificent Aisha this week. Business is not ready, government is not ready, it would be a wrecking ball on our economy. So that is It's hard to listen to the news at the moment without hearing some kind of warning about the economy. Nearly all of those warnings focus on one thing, Brexit. It's true that lots of people think Brexit is risky, but in the clamour to define what Brexit means, could we be blindsided by something else? The fundamentals that keep an economy strong and stable have not been restored. Can we promise it will never happen again over 100 years, 150 years? No, that would be silly for me to say that. Obviously, it's difficult to predict exactly how and when another shock to the economy might happen. But is there more we could be doing to get the economy ready for whatever might be around the corner? And can we set our sights higher and make it better for everyone than it is today? This week on the podcast, how to shockproof the economy. We're going to make sure this country never again gets into this mess. We're going to run a surplus. I'm joined by Head of Economics here at the New Economics Foundation, Alfie Sterling. Hello, Alfie. Hello. Can we call you Al? Al, no. Alf? No. Alfie? Yes. Great. And Senior Economist at NEF and all-round number cruncher, Sarah Arnold. Hello, Sarah. Hello. So we're going to get into these bigger questions about how to make the economy more resilient later in the podcast. But first, we need to talk about the spring statement, which is this Wednesday, if you're listening on the day this episode comes out. It isn't a full budget, or as I like to say, fudge it, but it's a chance for the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Herman, to make announcements about changes to taxes and spending, that kind of stuff. And this will all tie back to the question of resilience, I promise. So Alfie, what do we know so far about what Philip Hammond is going to say? So we actually don't know very much at all, and that's partly because government's been reassuring us kind of week on week, month on month, that there won't be much in this um, spring statement at all. They, they're really keen to basically have one event a year where they set out new spending measures. And they've said that's now going to be in autumn every year. And as a result, they've kind of relegated this spring event to being a bit of a non, uh, non-event. Having said that, the main thing that people are now wondering and, and speculating over is what will happen to all the forecasts um, of what's going on in the economy on this day? Because the Office for Budget Responsibility, who are this kind of independent body who analyse the economy and, and look at how um, whether things are healthy or not, they're going to report on the same day as the Chancellor gives his spring statement. And in those forecasts will be effectively kind of the answers to questions like how much money is available over the next five years, what's the strength of the economy look like, what tax rate's going to look like. And that could change the picture um, quite a lot. But having said that, these things get revised all the time. So just because they get revised um, in a certain direction doesn't mean they won't be reversed again six months later. So it is really a bit of a non-event overall. One thing that's on the cards this week is that the Chancellor um, might be raising the personal allowance income tax threshold again. Um, can you just explain what that means for anyone listening who doesn't know? Yeah, so I think in the context of it being a non-event, actually it's really informative to look at what were the big decisions that have happened at the last uh, budget but are going to come into effect um, in April. And that's definitely one of the big ones. So this is the the policy from government to change the way that income tax is levied on our income. So at the moment, for the first £11,850, I think it is, um, you don't pay any tax at all, any income tax. Um, But from the 1st of April, it'll now be £12,500. And what that does at the same time is it lifts the threshold at which you start paying 40p as well. 
Um, so higher earners also benefit. In fact, they benefit twice, uh, once from the personal allowance going up, once from the amount of money they don't pay any tax, and again, when the threshold at which they start paying 40p also goes up. And on top of that, um, government's also increasing that higher rate threshold, that rate at which you start paying 40p even further than they need to, and they're raising it right up to 50,000, uh, which is around the kind of top 12% of, um, of taxpayers. Um, so what we're going to see on the 1st of April will be a big tax cut um, across the board, but really concentrated at the top end of the income distribution, benefiting richest families most. Okay, um, so I understand you're not a fan of raising the personal allowance. Um, so if you were the Chancellor, what would you do instead? So um, NEF's publishing a proposal on this on this idea exactly. So we would like to see quite a major upheaval in how uh, the tax system works in this respect. So we think that you should get rid of the personal allowance entirely, start charging tax on the first pound of earnings that somebody has, but swap it for a weekly payment um, so that everyone receives cash in their pocket every week instead of um, instead of receiving the allowance in tax. And overall, this is actually broadly cost neutral, um, so it's not going to cost the government anything. But what it does do is it reallocates a whole load of uh, money that is currently handed over to some of the richest families in the form of a tax allowance and gives it to people at the lower end of the um, income distribution. So people out of work, for example, will now receive a new payment every week um, uh, on top of uh, their Social Security payments. So is that kind of like a universal basic income? So it's more about um, boosting the existing Social Security system. Um, it's got similarities with universal basic income in that it's uh, non-conditional. You don't have to do anything to receive this money. Um, but it's not a basic income in the sense that it's being designed to meet a certain basic need. It's also not being designed to be uh, to be paid to everyone equally. So, for example, if you earn more than um, £125,000, uh, you won't receive this payment, and that's because under the current tax system, you don't currently get a personal allowance. So the point of this is not to start creating a universal basic income. It's about spending some money that government's already spending because it doesn't get the tax receipts in a better way. Um, and just to kind of explain that, the, the personal allowance, um, this, this tax allowance that we're talking about, it's worth about £107 billion um, every year. Um, now, that's almost the size of the NHS in England. It's more than Department for Defence, Transport, local government combined. It's an absolutely massive amount of money. Um, and it's not being spent uh, well. It's not being allocated well. And it's benefiting richer families rather than poorer households. And do you have a snappy title for your new uh, policy suggestion? We're working on it. Um, I'd better not say, actually, because it might change before the podcast goes out. So the answer is yes, but you'll have to wait for the paper. Exciting. Um, so, Sarah, the government is also going to announce something they're calling the Stronger Towns Fund, which its critics are calling the Brexit bribe. Um, what's going on with that? OK, so the government has announced that they're going to provide an additional £1.6 billion to local towns and um, local authorities across England. And that sounds like it might be quite a lot of money. It might sound quite good, but that's actually, it amounts to about £260 million per year. And that is really tiny when you compare to the amount that local governments have been cut over the last seven years. So local government has had their funding slashed since 2010. The support grant from the government they've been given um, is now 95% less than it was nearly 10 years ago. Um, and so this is a tiny drop in the ocean compared to the amount that local government's been cut. Um, and I guess the reason why people are calling it potentially um, a Brexit bribe is the way that it's been allocated. So it's been allocated um, differently to different regions, um, primarily to regions the northwest, the northeast, and the east of England, um, and none to London. 
with the idea of supporting towns that have been left behind due to the, the kind of the inequalities in growth. But the problem is that it's it's not remotely enough. So although it might be kind of like a little handout, it's not it doesn't make up at all for what's previously been lost. Um, and so it kind of seems a bit meaningless, which is why it might be a bit of a bit of a bribe. And if they're getting an extra one point six billion, how big were the cuts in comparison to that? Um, so the revenue support grant, which is the amount of unrestricted funding that is allocated to local government um, has been cut by 13 billion. So it's about it's about 10% of that. Okay. And um, the other thing is um, quite a few people have pointed out that the amount of money that different local um, local places would have received if we did if we'd stayed in the EU through the EU cohesion fund is about 10 times that again. Um, sorry, that's 10 times the 1.6 billion, it would be around 13 billion. And sorry, so why is it that people are calling it a Brexit bribe? I think it's because it's where it's where it's been allocated to. Mm-hmm. So it's allocated to the places generally that um, voted um, voted leave, uh-huh. um, and where the MPs um, might be tempted to vote against the government's uh, Brexit deal. So moving on, I've got a tweet here from the previous Chancellor George Osborne, um, this time last year. He said, "We got there in the end. A remarkable national effort. Thank you." He was talking there about eliminating the deficit. So let's talk about austerity. Um, Is it continuing, slowing down? I heard it had ended. What's going on? So Theresa May um, last year announced the end of austerity. Um, Hooray! Hooray, yes. Um, Congratulating the British public for all their hard work. Um, But when the Chancellor then um, in uh, in the October budget actually announced what spending would happen over the next five years, that was not actually enough to end austerity or reverse it. So um, unrestricted budgets, so certain budgets are protected, health budgets are protected, education budgets are protected, um, but the rest of the budgets of different departments have not been protected and they will still be facing cuts over the next five years. So that's some of our vital services, like like prisons, for example, will face further cuts when they're really struggling, um, and local government as well. So the announcements weren't enough to um, to end austerity, but we need to think, we can't just be thinking about ending austerity, we actually need to start thinking about reversing austerity, because some of the impacts of austerity are really starting to bite. Um, we're seeing that in the queues for food banks, we're seeing that in the levels of indebtedness of households, so we need to actually properly end, the, end austerity by actually spending more to get back to the kind of levels of spending we had in 2010 when um, services were properly funded. And the Financial Times has been reporting that there'll be a boost in public service spending. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, I get a bit of context to what kind of Sarah was saying as well, is that um, we all thought that Hammond, the, the, um, the current Chancellor, was going to have a real problem last October because they'd announced all this money for the NHS, um, you know, £25 billion, uh, by the mid-2020s extra per year, and no one really knew how to pay for it. And there was a real kind of political problem inside government with different ministers all tearing their hair out. And then a few weeks before Budget Day, um, they got really lucky, um, and the Office of Budget Responsibility, that, that body I mentioned before, they changed some of their forecasting methods, and because of the direction of those changes, it just created loads of new money. Now, straight away, that Sneaky money was... accountants. Sneaky accountants. And, and that money was spent straight away. But of course, you know, there could be another revision in six months later, which goes the opposite direction, mm-hmm. or in two years' time. But that money was st- spent straight away um, on doing all the things that Sarah was describing. The big picture is that although he was paying all this money out last October, it was all money that, was, as I said, was just created out of thin air by accounting rules. 
And overall, the trend remained the same, which was that every year government is expecting to uh, reduce the deficit more and more and actually drive on into a surplus, which means irrespective of all these nice goodies and handouts he was going to do in tax cuts or money to the NHS, he was still taking money systematically out of the economy and making government as a whole more austere. And that was kind of drowned out last time in all the commentary around it because of all these good news stories he was going to make. We'll come back to fiscal headroom and surpluses in a bit uh, when we chat about resilience. But I wanted to ask, what's been the effect of austerity on the economy so far? I know that, Alfie, you've worked out how much it's cost for each person. Yeah. um, So one of the things that economists have kind of argued about for a while now has been, well, what has been the impact of austerity on the economy as a whole? Um, And that's partly because a lot of the human impact is really clear. Like You can see food bank use going up, you can see homelessness going up, you can see local government services, um, like Sarah was talking about, being cut. And these are actually the important things and the things that day to day everyone should be basically really angry about because of the impact on people's lives. But economists have argued more about, well, what's the effect on the, the economy as a whole? And lots of people have come up with different estimates, but it's been hard to use a method that the government itself kind of can't critique or has to kind of um, has to stand by. And that changed a couple of years ago when uh, when government forecasters um, started doing a little bit of analysis that showed what the impact every year of government decisions on tax and spending was on GDP growth. So it was their own forecasters, their own um, officials started looking at the effect of government decisions on growth. And because they published that series and buried in an annex in a kind of end of year report that comes out each year, If you go into that annex, you can then work out, by extension, what the effect on the overall economy as a whole is. And you can see how much the level of the economy has been suppressed as a result of of, um, of, of austerity and cuts. And the total figure is about £100 billion. Um, So the isolated effect of austerity on the economy is about £100 That's how much smaller we think the economy is. And that's worth about £3,500 per family, more than £1,000 per person um, in the economy as a whole. So it's a really big number, a really serious impact on, on people's living standards. And I guess really powerful to put it into a language that the government can understand when it's in pounds. And using, and using methods that they, they can't do anything other than endorse because it's their own officials. And is that figure per year? It's 100 billion per year. So um, in 2019-20, um, we expect the economy to be 100 billion smaller, at least. Which ironically has made it harder for the government to hit its own targets anyway. By shrinking the economy, the government obviously shrinks its tax receipts as well. Obviously, that's not the only reason that austerity is a bad thing, but it has meant that austerity has had to go on longer. Mm. um, And we've been dragging through another kind of 10 years of this because it's become harder and harder to hit these targets as our economy has been shrinking. Given that government isn't here to defend itself, I feel obliged to at least put their side of it just so we can dismantle that as well, which is (laughs) that um, um, their their standard response will be, well, that's all well and good. But actually, whatever, whatever we do to the economy, whenever we make cuts or we increase spending... These things are only temporary. The effects are only temporary and they kind of disappear in the long run because markets self-equilibrate and prices come back to normal and all the rest of it. And so they'll say, well, it's just temporary and it hasn't accumulated in this way, so don't worry about it. But one of the key problems with that argument is that it relies upon um, the Bank of England, the organisation that kind of sets monetary policy in the UK. It relies on them responding to austerity and being able to offset it by making borrowing cheaper. Um, But the Bank of England hasn't been able to do that, and that's because interest rates have been um, at kind of rock bottom for the last decade. So this kind of the classic defence from government, which is that the economy will re, um, you know, reach equilibrium, will go back to normal as a result of austerity and there's no lasting effect, just doesn't hold anymore uh, because monetary policymakers changing the cost of credit haven't been able to do their job. Um, and so what does it mean that they can't do their jobs? 
So um, monetary policymakers, it's their job to um, look at inflation in the economy and the amount of GDP growth we've got. And if we haven't got enough uh, growth or inflation is too low, it's their job to make credit cheaper, make it cheaper to take out a mortgage, cheaper to take a bank loan, cheaper to go into your overdraft, um, so that people boost their spending a little bit to um, to uh, speed up the economy. And equally, if we've got too much growth or if uh, inflation is too high, their job is to do the opposite. But over the last few years, our problem has been very much one of not you know too slow growth. Certainly hasn't been inclusive or sustainable, but also just from pure orthodox measures, not enough growth um, in their eyes. Um, in orthodox eyes, but they haven't been able to reduce the cost of lending because interest rates were already as low as they could possibly go. So uh-huh. they couldn't boost spending further. And that's why, if that combines with austerity coming in, pulling out government spending, Bank of England can't reduce the cost of credit to make households and businesses fill in the gap. Okay, that's really helpful. And actually neatly brings us on to how to make the economy more shockproof. I'm not going to dwell too much on the doom and gloom, we already have quite a bit, um, or force you to make predictions. But what are some of the kinds of things that might cause some sort of shock to the economy? Well, one of the, this, this question is an interesting one because it's in some ways it's um, a bit of a contradiction in terms because the types of things that cause a shock are things that provoke uncertainty. So things where suddenly people don't know what's going to happen and therefore they stop investing or they stop spending because they're not sure about things. But... And lots of economists spend all their time saying, you know, well, it will be this, this is the next shock, this is the next shock. But by definition, if uncertainty is the thing that's going to cause the next shock, if we've already spotted it and we know about it now, that won't be the shock because we um, can expect it coming down the line. So people do talk about um, potential shocks being, you know, um, a shock to oil prices because of conflict in the Middle East affecting oil prices, stock markets in either China or Silicon Valley because of stock market bubbles. But actually, I think one of the biggest candidates for a future shock um, globally, which would certainly affect the UK, which is going back to this point about interest rates being super, super low, is that countries are going to have to lift their interest rates in the long run, because otherwise families just get pushed into further and further debt as a result of cheap borrowing. And that means for the first time, I think, ever, pretty much every advanced economy is going to be raising interest rates at the same time. And that's entirely unprecedented. We don't know what the effects of that will be. Normally, when one country does it, money flows away into another into another jurisdiction to benefit from higher rates. But if every country at the same time is lifting their rates, we just don't know how the global economy will respond. And that could really dry up funding, could dry up spending and investment um, across the board. And that's a potential shock um, to the global economy and the UK in particular. And I think another big one, although climate change will not be coming as a shock to anybody exactly, um, in that we all know it's happening, the pattern and fall of extreme weather events, we have no idea. We're unable to predict that very clearly. Um, and that will become more and more likely as time goes on. We'll be seeing more things like Hurricane Katrina. We'll be seeing more extreme weather events that can wipe out whole towns, potentially whole cities. Those will most likely cause shocks to the economy that although we know are likely to happen and we can try and plan for, we still can't completely control for it. The United Kingdom will cease to be a member of the European Union on the 29th of March 2019. This government is committed to delivering exiting on the 29th of March. The UK is leaving the EU on the 29th of March 2019. I am clear that we will be leaving the European Union on the 29th of March. Voting this time 391 to 242, a majority of 149. That's the third biggest defeat ever suffered by any government. So the PM has won the gold and bronze medals for government defeats. And Alfie, you've already mentioned uncertainty, but I I just wanted to hear, um, we hear a lot about it 
already. So just briefly, what is it that makes Brexit economically risky? Is it just the uncertainty? It, it largely is the uncertainty. So there's, one of the problems is we don't know exactly what Brexit is because we don't yet have an agreement as to what the conditions will be. So right now, uncertainty is the big thing. Will it be no deal? Will it be some form of Theresa May's deal? Will it be a delay? And therefore, we don't know what deal it could be or not. So right now, it is uncertainty. It's businesses in particular not knowing what the rules of trade will be. And that doesn't just affect um, exporters, it affects everyone importing as well. Um, and so not knowing that means, well, how can they possibly right now take the risk of investing for future, for future business growth and for creating future jobs if they don't know what the conditions they're going to be trading in are going to be. So right now it is, un- it is uncertainty. But it's worth saying that if we do have a no-deal Brexit, the impacts of that will not be so much uncertainty as just um, a real kind of detrimental impact on supply chains. We'll, we'll struggle to be able to bring in, uh, bring in spare parts for manufacturing, um, to import the kind of services and expertise that we need to help businesses, because suddenly all the entire schedule of trading and tariffs will have changed um, and we'll have much less preferential terms to trade at the EU. So last time there was a big shock to the economy in 2008, what was the response? So there was a mixture of responses. I think when you're thinking about what happens immediately after a crisis, there are kind of three categories of response. There's what government, uh, as in the Treasury, the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, what they decide to do. So they're kind of their active decisions, and that's basically around tax and spending. Do they uh, cut taxes to put more pounds in people's pockets, or do they increase spending to boost public sector pay, and which then filters out throughout the economy? Um, so that's one category. The, uh, the next one is kind of the automatic response, because even if you do nothing, more people will become unemployed or lose pay as a result of the recession. But that automatically means that we spend more on social security. So either through tax credits, boosting pay, or unemployment benefit. Um, so that's a kind of automatic response, if you like, that happens straight away. And then the third is the thing we were talking about earlier, which is this, this monetary policy, uh, where the central bank, it's their job to respond by making credit in the economy cheaper. So that even though there's a recession going on, and that's obviously dampening down on spending, they want to try and offset a bit of that by making it cheaper for people to borrow temporarily, um, in theory, so that uh, spending increases and then the economy can, re- can come back to normal. And it was a mixture of all those things in 2008. All three of those things happened. But the key thing that happened after that was before the economy had recovered, one of those levers, one of those big responses just stopped after 2010. And that was the thing we now call austerity, which is where government just decided to completely stop spending to help recovery and help uh, family incomes um, and family living standards grow, um, and instead pulled back and actually shifted more of the burden of recovery onto household budgets rather than the public budget. And, and just thinking about the active choices that, that you've mentioned, um, if we ended up in the same situation, should we reach for the same solutions? So we will have to, to an extent, because, as we were saying earlier, monetary policy can't go any lower. So actually, yeah. we're, we're already in quite a difficult position, which is that um, one of the main response mechanisms to a recession, this cutting of interest rates, just cannot operate as normal because it's already uh, close to zero. It's almost it's all, already as low as it possibly can go. Um, so that does mean that, that these active decisions from government will have to kick in and will have to kick in in quite a big way. Another one of the ideas that we're talking about as well is and this is policy we mentioned earlier about swapping the personal allowance for this weekly cash payment to everyone, that will also really help in a recession. So a lot more of that weekly payment will get spent in a recession because if people's incomes drop, um, they're more likely to spend that extra um, that extra weekly payment, £50 a week it is, than they are to save it. So that will boost spending um, as a whole. But on top of that, in terms of active decisions, it also now means the government has this kind of um, 
very direct lever where it can put money directly into people's bank accounts through this weekly payment. So it could increase it by five or 10 or 15 pounds a week uh, just temporarily. And that could be a really powerful response to recession, particularly if interest rates can't be cut any further. Um, Sarah, you mentioned that the Chancellor wants to run a surplus and build up um, fiscal headroom, which I think is my favourite new jargon (laughs) word for the day. But is it fair to say you think that it makes the situation more risky, not less? Then you mean it makes us more likely to be hitting another recession fairly soon? Is that what you're asking? Mm. I would say so, because currently by, by holding on to this kind of fiscal headroom, the, the Chancellor is by definition not spending money that he could be spending on things like public services, which means that we're seeing that a lot of families um, are currently being driven further and further into debt. So they're living, um, it's, our economy is becoming more precarious and is relying much more on um, household debt, which is creating quite a risky situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've talked a bit about what makes an economy precarious, but what would make it more resilient and resistant to those kinds of shocks? What would be the kind of ideal situation? I would say a much more equal society, because right now um, a lot of wealth um, is captured um, at the very top end, um, and so we have a lot of people... Um, living very precariously at the bottom. If we were, if we redistributed wealth um, and income much more fairly, that would make the economy more resilient because less people in debt would be likely to default. If we hit another financial crisis, for example, last time it was a lot. A lot of that was caused by the mortgage default that happened. Um, and so, if wealth and income was dis- redistributed more fairly, um, people would be less likely to default in the case of another shock. So, so, so Sarah's um, absolutely right about the benefits of reducing um, inequality. And I think, and then obviously we mentioned earlier about increasing social security payments, so this kind of weekly payment and that boosts uh, uh, boost the response to recession. But there's another whole basket of things, which is public investment. And one of the really important things about thinking about how you respond to recession isn't just, oh, well, you know, how do you get back to normal? It's how do you improve things? How do you improve uh, lives for everyone? And one of the key emergencies we have right now is responding to the environmental crisis that we've got. And so uh, one of the most important tools for responding to recession should be public investment, and it should be investment um, in support of a Green New Deal or a just transition to help embed the economy within sustainable um, limits. And that's a really powerful tool for recession because you can set out a whole uh, kind of schedule, if you like, of, of different public uh, work, whether it's reinstating homes uh, or boosting renewable energy and, and the technology that goes into that. And in a recession, you just bring forward that investment, so spend more of that investment earlier, fast-track uh, the shift towards a sustainable economy, but also temporarily give a booster to come out of recession. So that's a really part, important part of the toolkit, and that's why it needs to be about thinking about the future and not just at the short-term uh, recovery as well. Um, well, that all sounds well and good, Alfie, but apart from government borrowing, how would you pay for that? So there are there are three ways in which you might finance a big investment programme like that, and you're right that um, public borrowing is one of them, that should, that should stay on the table. The other two are uh, private investment and borrowing. So Actually, there's a big role the Bank of England could be doing around kind of steering and pushing uh, private investment towards the types of things that we think have a really important social purpose or a, um, a green or sustainable purpose. So what that means in practice is banks having cheaper loans uh, for companies that go and do green investment or to re-insulate homes or um, improve technology around renewable energy. So making that cost of credit cheaper, so that also helps to fund uh, these things. And then the other is taxation as well. And at the moment, there's a lot of debate around uh, taxing wealth and how we might capture more of the country's wealth through the tax system to, to uh, support projects like this. 
actually, I think a lot of these conversations get a bit confused because the best point to tax wealth is when it's an income, when it's a flow. So, uh, for example, capital gains tax is supposed to be a tax on when you receive income from selling something. Um, so it's a point at which a piece of wealth someone has uh, becomes income for someone else, and it should be taxed at that point. But we tax capital gains at about half the rate that we kept tax income tax. So a very simple measure in which you could boost taxation of wealth is actually just tax it properly when it's an income. And these sorts of uh, programs of, of reform for the tax system would also help to fund um, investment in a Green New Deal, just, just transition, and these sorts of other uh, responses to recession as well. And so what would you be, are those the kinds of things that you'd be announcing at the spring statement if you were the Chancellor? So, well, no. So the context of your question was, what would you do in a recession mm-hmm. and a crisis? And, and we're not there um, right now. But nonetheless, it would probably have a similar theme in that, as Sarah said, we've got a lot of fiscal headroom as things stand. And we also have this complete catastrophe in terms of environmental change. I mean, you forget its impact on the economy. It's, it's an impact on the planet and on people's lives across the globe. And so we should be boosting spending for that purpose, irrespective of recession or not. But the, the precise measures you bring in and, and, um, and the way in which you justify it, uh, both politically and, and, and if you're a chancellor with the Bank of England, will be different depending on if it's a kind of a business-as-usual spring statement or a, or a response to catastrophe like, uh, like a recession or Brexit no deal. And just going back to resilience and the automatic stabilisers for the economy, do you think there's something we could do with universal credit? So I think the most powerful thing you can do is give people um, a kind of a minimum kind of safety net that they can live off, and it's, which isn't conditional. Um, so really, that's almost the opposite of what universal credit is. Universal credit is a really leaky safety net. It doesn't pay very much, and it's highly conditional, forcing people into um, uh, to apply for jobs they don't want or need, um, and they won't be able to stay in for very long. So in many ways, it's actually just saying, do something completely different. And that is definitely what we need to do, um, because social security, uh, universal credit is not is not really fit for the challenges um, coming our way. But if you were to do something within universal credit and you were to try and make a, um, try to polish a turd uh, rather than replace it entirely, then the two things, or the three things you'd probably do straight away are increase the work allowance, which is the amount of money someone gets to keep um, when they move into work before they have their benefits removed, because at the moment benefits start getting taken away quite quickly. Another thing you would do is lower the rate at which benefits get removed when someone's earning money. So at the moment, when you have a pound of earnings, you use 63p in benefits. That's too high. It should be lower. And the third thing is to reverse the two-child limit, um, because at the moment, a huge amount of money has been taken out of universal credit, taken out of family income, because um, you now only receive a um, Social Security payment payment for the first two children you have. So almost you know, arbitrarily, third, fourth, fifth children now get no payment on universal credit. Um, and that's a, that's a huge problem for the safety net that we're supposed to have to, to shield people from recession. Chancellor Alfie needs to happen, or Chancellor Alf. Um, so Sarah, will you take us home with anything else we could do to strengthen the economy? What, so we've already discussed kind of universal credit, so overhauling the benefit system and the taxation system more widely. And I guess we talked about investing in public services a little bit, but I think we need to think about not just kind of investing in public services is, is kind of sticking with what we currently have, but completely um, overhauling what we provide as a nation to to our citizens. So this idea of kind of universal basic services and I'm basically providing a lot more things to everybody in a non, on a non-conditional basis to kind of to protect people from risk and to essentially provide people with a bit more of a safety net than they currently have. We could expand care provision um, for the elderly, for childcare, 
Um, we could provide transport. We can com completely reform the way that we do these things. We just need a little bit more imagination than what we currently have. That's a good note to end on. So that's it for this week. Alfie Sterling, thank you for joining me. Where can people hear more from you? Do you have a Twitter? Sure. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. Some people do, not that many. Um, but yeah, Alfie Sterling on Twitter. And Sarah Arnold, same question. Yes, I also have a Twitter, but right now I don't actually know my Twitter handle. Uh, but I should look that up. And oh, I think it's at Sarah Sarni. Um, Sarni like the sandwich. <laughs> and of course, you're both on the Neff blog. Yes. So if you enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield with help this week from Sophie Jenkinson and we're brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Hannah Wheatley and Aisha will be back next week. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs>